The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. If you're a guest or visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're with us. Um, and this morning, uh, we're continuing in our summer series in the book of Psalms, and so we're going to be looking at Psalm 41. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 41. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. We'll project the passage in just a moment. And if, if you don't have a Bible, if you came here this morning, you don't own one, you don't have one, um, and you would like one, please take that one in the chair. Uh, that is our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Uh, no one will ask you what you're doing with it. <laughs> we want you to take that with you. But this morning we're looking at Psalm 41, and Psalm 41 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of David. And uh, as I was thinking about the psalms this summer, the, the various psalms we've looked at, I, I realized that we haven't talked a lot about lament this summer. And that's a little odd or a little strange because lament is so prominent in the Psalter. In fact, uh, the the most uh, common genre in the entire Psalms, book of Psalms, is lament. That might strike us as odd. There are more laments than there are songs of praise, than there are historical psalms, than messianic psalms or royal psalms. What we see time and again is the psalmist crying out. In fact, over half of the psalms attributed to David are laments. And in these laments, we hear hard, honest, deep questions when faced with concern and sadness and doubt. And what's helpful about this, what's helpful about the fact that God has given us these laments is that they actually give us permission to bring all of our thoughts and all of our emotions before the Lord. Not so that we would remain in confusion or, or allow affliction to overwhelm us, but instead by crying out and using the very words that God has given us, by asking questions, by coming to God with our doubts, that we would have our minds and our hearts reoriented around what is good and beautiful and right. That we would have our hearts and minds reoriented towards the Lord. And that's what this psalm is helping us do. So let's read Psalm 41. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. 
but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we do ask that as we come to it now that you would stir our hearts you would enliven our minds and you would fill our mouths so that we would declare, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Help us, Father, to see the beauty of your grace, the glory of your mercy, and to walk with you even now. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So with... Uh, the various surgeries that Kat has had to endure over the last couple of years, four surgeries in two years, we've learned an awful lot about uh, medicine, about uh, surgery, about the human body. A lot more, I know there is way more for us to learn, but a lot more than we ever knew before. We learned about procedures, like how to deal with uh, a ganglion cyst, or how to, uh, about nerve grafts, and about ruin wise. <laughs> I didn't even know that, that was a word or a phrase, but, but we've learned about these sorts of things. We've learned about anesthesia and what it does to the body, and specifically to Kat's body and how she responds to it. And we've learned about recovery. And, and what goes into recovery and, and what is needed for recovery. And one of the things that we learned, which makes sense now that we've been told it, but one of the things that we learned is that recovery is often dependent on good preparation. It's dependent upon good preparation. Now, I don't know how all the things work together. I don't know all the details. I'm, I'm not a doctor, right? And I don't pretend to be one, <laughs> right? But, but I do know what we've been told from doctors, is that as the body recovers and it needs nutrients and protein and, and all these various things that we take in so that the body will heal and return to proper health. But, but the problem with that is that after a surgery, you often don't want to take in protein and nutrients and calories, right? You lose your appetite. You don't want to eat. And so you have to prepare before the surgery. You have to prepare, and so one of the things leading up to one of Kat's surgeries was that she had to drink these protein shakes. Every single day, multiple times a day, she had to drink these shakes. And these shakes, right, a protein shake is a meal replacer. You're running late in the morning, right? You don't have time to make bacon and eggs or a good, you know, breakfast of oatmeal or whatever it is that you like to eat. And so you grab a protein shake and you drink it on the way to work and you feel good until lunch, right? Or, or, you know, maybe you feel good. But, but regardless, right, you take in those calories that you need for the morning. They're meal replacers. But for Kat, these were meal additives. So there she would be with us eating chicken and, you know, a salad and, and potatoes at dinner. And then shortly after dinner, she would be seen at our table throwing down a protein shake. Right? Taking in even more calories, even more protein, right? Like Kat. Y'all know Kat. She's not a big person. And there she was ingesting far more calories than anyone else in our family, right? Probably maybe taking in double what everybody else was. And she was doing it to build these reserves. To build these reserves so that after her surgery, her body could recover. You see, surgery was coming. Recovery was needed, and so when it came, she needed help. 
She needed a, a reserve. She needed a foundation that she could pull from so that her body would recover. She needed these reserves. And this is true not just in our physical lives, like when we're facing surgery, when we're facing recovery, but it's true of our spiritual lives. When we face concern and affliction, Jesus told us that we would face affliction. He told his disciples that we would experience tribulation and distress. And David, in this psalm, he laments about the affliction he faces. And in order to face that affliction, just as Kat needed to face her surgery, we need to be prepared with a foundation, with reserves to pull from. And that's what the psalm begins with. It begins with the foundation that is the reserve that we can tap into when we face affliction. And our foundation is the very character and work of God. We see it in the first three verses of the passage when David talks about who God is and what he's done. In verse 1, we hear that God delivers. Verse 2, he protects and keeps and defends. Verse 3, he sustains and restores. This is who God is. This is what he does. And who does he do these things for? Well, verse 1 tells us, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. You see, the hymn, the, the he of verses 1 through 3 that, that the psalmist speaks of being delivered, being rescued, being sustained, it's pointing back to the person of verse 1, the person who considers the poor. So let's look closer at verse 1. That word poor doesn't simply mean one who is limited with financial means or, or lacking financial means. It's broader than that. The poor is the weak, the powerless, the insignificant. Now, now we know that oftentimes financial poverty is linked to these sorts of things, right? That maybe the, the financially poor, they, they don't have as much influence. They don't have opportunity to be seen. They are powerless. But, but that's not only what this psalm is talking about. That's not only the person that this word is speaking of. Poor means more than simply financial standing. It is those who are in need and often ignored. And David says that the one who considers them is the one who is blessed. And that word consider, it doesn't simply mean like acknowledge or seize them. It actually is something much deeper than that. It's giving thought or reflection in such a way to give help or aid to the one in need. David says that the one who considers the poor, considers the needy, seeks to give them aid, they are blessed. And friends, the fact of the matter is, is that that's exactly what God does to us. You see, David knew not financial poverty, but he knew spiritual poverty. And he knew and had experienced God's care and concern for him in the midst of it. And so do we. I mean, think about who we were, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian here this morning, think about what it, who we once were before we were believers, right? Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were still weak, not when we were strong, not when we were able, not when we were capable, but when we were weak, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's who God is. God is the one who delivers and protects and keeps and sustains. That is our foundation. That is our foundation. That is what we need to pull from when we prepare for and when we are in the midst of affliction. And that's what David does. You see, when faced with affliction, David is reminding himself and telling himself who God is so that when he faces affliction, he can stand up under it. And we see this affliction in verses 3 through 10. Affliction for David comes in three ways. It comes first in sickness, it comes by way of enemies, and it comes by way of betrayal. So we see sickness in verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed in his illness. You restore him to full health. Now, we don't know the exact occasion that David's speaking of. We don't know in the history of David in his life when he's, where he's looking to remind himself of this. But clearly, there is a time in his history where he was ill. Maybe gravely so, right? Like he was concerned that he was, he was perhaps going to die. This was going to be his deathbed. And so he's reflecting back on a time when he was ill. And in his illness, this gave an opportunity for his enemies. We see that in verses 5 through 8. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. So you see what's happening. David has been sick, and in his sickness, his enemies are plotting against him. And they are longing for his demise. And we know his history, right? We know that David faced many enemies. Enemies like the Philistines or or Saul or Absalom. Enemies from without the people of God and enemies from within. And what he's telling us is that these enemies, they whispered about his death. They took pleasure in his sickness. They don't consider David's need, but instead they long for his need to overwhelm him. But it's not just enemies that bring affliction. It's also the betrayal of his friends. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Of all the afflictions that David mentions, this had to have been the most painful. Right? I mean, in in times of sickness and illness, we expect our bodies to feel pain, for, for our bodies to ache. We expect evil men and wicked women. We expect them to act in evil and wicked ways for enemies to plot the downfall of others, to whisper about failings. But when it's someone we trust, when it's someone that we thought was a friend, when it's someone that we had laughed with or cried with or shared meals with or prayed together with, to have them turn on us, to whisper behind our backs, to speak falsehoods. It is a pain unlike the others. And some of us know that pain. 
Some of us know that betrayal and the hurt that that affliction brings. We've known it. David knew it. And so too did Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 13, as Jesus is sharing his last supper with his disciples, he quoted from this verse. He quoted from this psalm. Verse 9, he said, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus was eating with his disciples at the Last Supper, and he spoke knowing that one of the men who sat with him, one of the men whom he had washed his feet, one of the men who he had shared this meal with, who, who he had walked with, who had heard his teaching, who had seen his miracles, one of these men would betray him. And a few hours later, that man did. Because Jesus sold his friend, Jesus, for a few... You see, friends, Jesus knows your affliction. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your sadness and your hurt. Because he has experienced it. He, he knows it not just cognitively, he's not just aware of it, but... But he has faced opposition. He has seen enemies rise against him. He has been betrayed. He knows our affliction. And I have to tell you, friends, that, that actually gives me great comfort. It gives me great comfort because in the midst of our affliction, we can approach a God who understands our sadness, who knows our sorrow and understands our affliction. And that invites us to come, doesn't it? Not to stand away from him. No idea what we are experiencing, but to know that he knows what we have known. We can come to him. We can come to him, and that's exactly what David does. You see, when he faces affliction and sickness against enemies of being betrayed, he goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord, and, and he approaches the Lord doing two things. He repents, and he trusts. So we see the repentance in verse 4. David says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. You see, as David approaches God, he remembers that he must confess his sin, right? And notice his prayer, what it didn't say, right? He didn't say, heal me because I've been so good. He doesn't say, protect me because I have considered the poor. No, no, what he does is not appeal to his own good behavior because he has none. No, he knows his sin is present. He says, I have sinned against you. Bring healing to me because I have sinned against you. He repents. Now listen, in David repenting, he is not saying that every time that we are sick, Every time we face affliction, every time there is an enemy or betrayal, it is because of our sin. It's not what David's saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. That's not what I'm saying. I know that there may be those out there. Well, not maybe. There are those out there, hopefully not in here, but out there who would say that every time you're sick, every time there is affliction, every time there is difficulty, you are the problem. You, you have sinned against God, and so you need to repent, and, and then God in your repentance will bless you. He will restore you. He will make all things good. But, but that's just not the case. Yes, there are times when our sin leads to our affliction, but there are other times when, when it simply does not. 
In fact, later in verse 12, David speaks of his integrity. Did you see that? He confesses his sin, and later he talks of his integrity. So which is it, David? Well, it's both, right? David understands his sinfulness and in regards to why his affliction is coming. He knows he is not at fault. That's what he's getting at when he speaks of his integrity. He's talking about the situation, the opposition, the betrayal. He has not done anything to warrant this. You see, sometimes we are sinned against. Sometimes illness comes simply because we live in a world that is groaning under the effects of the fall. Sometimes it's simply not our fault. And David still confesses his sin. You see, when we come to God in our affliction, we pray, we cry out, we ask for deliverance from those who have sinned against us, and we confess that we too have sinned. Yes, they have sinned and whispered and plotted, and even as I know their sin, I know my sin. That in different ways and on different occasions, I have whispered, and I have hurt, and I have bruised and been a source of pain. That I know that I need grace and forgiveness and the healing of my soul. You see, in our affliction, we repent. But even in our affliction, we also trust. Look at verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So you see how David is trusting God. His enemy said, he will not rise again. But you, O God, he, pray, he prays, raise me up. It's a prayer of trust and dependence. They think that this will be my demise and my destruction, but no, Lord, I have confidence, I have trust, I have belief that this will be your great hour, that you will raise me up and deliver me, that you will rescue and save me. David is asking this prayer in trust and dependence. Don't let that little phrase, I may repay them, trip you up. David's not looking for vengeance here. He's not looking to stick it to them. What he's asking for is justice. Justice as the king who David was could administer. A justice that is dependent upon God. And even in this request, David is asking God to move in such a way so that his justice would be known. It's a prayer of trust. And this is what we are to do. In the midst of our affliction, we turn to God. We come to the one who understands our affliction and we repent of our pain. And in fact, Jesus knows a depth greater than our pain because he actually took our sin upon himself. And he took the justice that we were deserving upon himself so that grace would come. That is what we pray. God, raise us up. Restore us from this affliction because of your grace because of your forgiveness, because of your kindness to your people. We cry out to our Savior in the midst of affliction, and when we experience his care and his grace, well, our affliction turns to celebration. That's how the passage ends. By this I know that you delight in me. 
My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David knows, and we know, the promise of God that his and our enemies will not win. They will not win. Yes, at times it will look like darkness has won and that evil is gaining ground, right? At times it will look like the gates of hell are prevailing against the kingdom of God, but the promise of God is that his darkness will not, that darkness will not overcome his light. The promise of God is that joy comes in the morning. The promise is that the enemies of God will one day bow the knee before Jesus and declare that he is the Lord and he is the king. That he is the one who is victorious. That is the promise of God. That is the promise that we hold to even in the midst of our affliction. That is the promise that we cling to as we repent of our sins and trust in him and know that we will one day dwell with him forever. Right? That's what David says in Psalm 41. That we will dwell with him forever. That his enemies will not keep him down but that God will raise him up so that his people will dwell with him. It's the promise of Psalm 41, and it's the promise of Revelation 21. When the Apostle John says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's a day coming when affliction will be no more. Whatever your affliction might be, sickness, enemies, betrayal, whatever it might be, there is a day coming when affliction will be no more and we will dwell with God for all time. And in that day, we will celebrate by declaring, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. We will say that in that day, but friends, we can say it today as well. Because we know that through Jesus, because of what he has done, that he is actually pushing against the works of darkness now. That Christ has already defeated death and hell and the grave, and that all we are waiting for is that consummation. And so even today, we can say those words that we will one day say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and give you praise and glory that we will one day dwell with you for all eternity. And so we long for that day when sin and sickness, sorrow and affliction will be no more. But until that day comes, Father, let us turn to you in repentance and trust, knowing that you, because of Jesus, are at work that the gates of hell will not prevail against your kingdom, but it will go forth, and your kingdom, your glory will know no end. And we, your people, will sing praise to you, celebrating your good grace to us from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.